We're going to transition from the Lord's Prayer. We've been studying the Lord's Prayer for the last five weeks. We're going to actually move into a whole new series, a series based on relationships. Matthew lays out throughout his gospel five key themes, relationships being one of them. And so we will look at this theme of relationships for the next couple of weeks. We'll begin today by the idea of what is our relationship to look like with outsiders. Next week, we'll look at what is our relationship to look like with insiders, being people within the church. And then from there, we'll move on. I, uh, I won't give you a hint as to what those things are, so you guys keep coming back. It's exciting stuff, though. Um, so today, we'll look at this idea of our relationships with outsiders. And I want to frame it this way, because I could say outsiders. You may think something completely different than what I think. So when I say outsiders... This morning, it's going to be somewhat loose and moldable, but really what I'm talking about is those people that we would view as adversarial or enemies might be a better way to say it. So when I'm thinking of outsiders, it's not just simply people that haven't confessed faith in Jesus Christ, but it's actually people that are adversarial at some level in our lives or we would view as an enemy. Maybe people that we just would simply say, I just don't like them. You may not even have a reason, but there are those people in our lives. Now, you may sit there this morning and say, oh, I don't really have en- enemies in my life. And I kind of thought that too when I first began to study this passage. But let me give you a list of maybe some idea of who enemies can be and see if you can identify with any of these. Might be the kid that picked on you during junior high. I have a good friend. He's in our small group. About three weeks ago, he was sharing this story. We were, we were looking at this passage, studying this. Uh, he was sharing this story he went to Costco with his wife. His wife is pregnant. Uh, I mean, he's, he's got a career. Fantastic guy. Loves Jesus. Went to Costco, ran into his, high, or his junior high enemy. They were both eating a hot dog at Costco. <laughs> Saw this guy, and he said his blood pressure immediately went through the roof. And he got sweaty, and he just, like, it would kind of set off that, oh, my gosh, there he is. I mean, he hasn't seen him in 13 years or something like that. But there's still that feeling there, still that feeling of, oh, that was my enemy. So maybe that's an enemy in your life, somebody from the past, the kid that picked on you during junior high. Maybe it's a boss or a coworker. You view them as adversarial. Maybe it's Al-Qaeda. Maybe that's who we view as the enemies. Maybe it's doctors who perform abortions. Or it's the homosexual community. Or it's the neighbor that comes over to your house and divulges all of his issues and problems and sucks all of your time and you just don't want to deal with it. Maybe it's President Obama. Maybe it's the right-wing agenda or the left-wing liberals or whoever it is. But those could all be outsiders. Those could all be people that are adversarial in our life, people that we view as enemies. I think enemies are people that we wish ill will upon. They're the people that we've thought, man, the world would just be better if they weren't around. Or the world would just be better if they were different, if they weren't like the way they are. Those are our enemies. Those are our adversaries. Those are outsiders this morning. I found this quote Uh, by John Howard Yoder, he says this, a substantial Christian commitment is to the outsider, the different one, the one not yet in our realm of concern, the enemy, the one to whom we do not have a given relationship of pride and culture and language, 
is, in a special sense, the test of whether I love my neighbor. The neighbor I must love, I must love is not my near neighbor. It is especially the enemy, the adversary. I think Jesus addresses the idea of outsiders, addresses the idea of enemies in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 5. We're going to look at that this morning. So, I grew up in the Methodist tradition. One of the things we did, which I, uh, I want to continue to do at some level, is whenever we read out of the Gospel, we would all stand together. So, if you would stand with me. We do this out of reverence for the Gospel and out of honor of the Gospel. So, we will stand, I will read this, and then we'll pray and, and we'll jump in here. Here's what Matthew 5, 38-48 says. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said that it, or you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Lord, be with us this morning as we approach this idea of loving our enemies. Lord, have grace with us as this is something we struggle with. Lord, have grace with us as we open our lives and say, Speak to us. Spirit, move in our lives. We pray that we would be open to your word. We pray that uh, we wouldn't hear this morning but leave unchanged, but that we would actually listen and hear this morning and leave changed people, transformed into your image. So speak to us, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, when you really boil it down, Jesus is speaking in this longer section, and, and I'll kind of break it into two sections this morning, but Jesus is speaking to the disciples as to how to interact with outsiders, how to interact with our enemies. He is really putting forth an ethic for how disciples are to live with their adversaries. And I think there are two critical points that we'll draw out of this, one from that first section a second point from the second section. But before we can get there, I want to I show you this, which was groundbreaking for me. There is a pattern that establishes itself in the Sermon on the Mount. So as we've studied this, and as you go back and, and continue to study this, there, this pattern emerges, emerges in over, I, I think it's something like over 15 different times in the Sermon on the Mount. This comes into play. What Jesus does as he teaches is he teaches the traditional righteousness. He will then go back and reinterpret that traditional righteousness teaching, and then he will call us into a distinct form of discipleship. You see, we can read the Sermon on the Mount and feel like, oh man, I can never do that. that. That's way too high. 
the bar is set too high, I can't do that. So maybe it doesn't really matter, or maybe it really shouldn't change my life. But a true understanding of the Sermon on the Mount, and, and when you read it with this pattern in mind, you begin to see the fact that Jesus presents to us different transforming initiatives, different ways that we can actually rise to the bar that he sets, that the Sermon on the Mount can actually change our lives. So let's look at this pattern through that first section, the, the eye for the eye, tooth for the tooth section. Jesus, he says this, you have heard it said in the traditional righteousness then comes in here, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Everybody that was standing there would have understood that, would have heard that and said, oh yeah, I have heard that, that said. I, I know what that means. I get that. But then Jesus steps in and he says, but I say, do not resist an evil person. Now that word resist is a little bit hard to understand and translated into English, it's maybe not the best word. A, a better way to, to say that would be stand against evil. Jesus says his reinterpretation is, but stand against evil. One commentator puts it this way. Do not react violently against the one who is evil. That is his reinterpretation. You've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not react violently towards the one who is evil. His distinct form of discipleship that he's calling us into is to find a third way. A third way is a creative, loving, nonviolent response to evil people or situations. That is a third way. You see, it's natural for us, we have two natural responses to any situation that we might view adversarial. Flight or fight. How many people have heard this? Who's taken psychology at any level? These things are hardwired into us. Something happens and the DNA kicks in and we either fight back or we flee the situation. These two things are hardwired into who we are as human beings. A recent study showed that the average child watching two to four hours of TV a day will witness 8,000 murders and 10,000 acts of violence by the time they're in first grade. So we are not only predisposed to flight or fight, it's not only a part of who we are, but as a culture we condition ourselves then to fight back. Whether it's TV or movies, video games, whatever it is, we're a violent culture. Partly because there's that, that just sense in us that, hey, we either fight back or we want to run away but then we're also conditioning ourselves to fight back. And even at some level, those who fight back are looked at as the courageous ones. There's courage in that idea of fighting back. And yet Jesus seems to present a different option. We recently have been watching a lot of Peter Pan at our house. So I've got, again, two really young boys, and um, maybe not our brightest parenting moment in this one, but we put in Peter Pan, remembering it as a fond movie of our childhood, and there is an incredible amount of sword fighting in Peter Pan. I don't know if you know that. So for the last two weeks, all that my boys have been wanting to do is sword fight. So one of my boys will go into the kitchen and he'll grab, we have a mix master, and he'll grab the dough hook, and he'll hold that around as a hook. And then anything long, so whether it's a wooden spoon or a Lincoln log or a long Lego, that's his sword. And they run around and they sword fight one another, Um, which is always a disaster. (laughs) One of them's not ready and he gets walloped in the head with a sword. And 
one of two responses comes out. Either he turns around and pushes him or fights back, or he immediately erupts into tears and runs away. So I'm beginning to see this pattern follow out, this, this just ingrained nature of fight or flight begin to play out on my kids where something happens and they either fight back or they flee the situation. Jesus is presenting to us a third way. You, so in those three instances, we, we see third ways. He says, okay, so when you, turn, you can either turn the other cheek or you can give your coat as well or you can go the extra mile. Those things, we read them and we may not totally understand what they are, but they would have incredible cultural impact. People would have heard those things and understood the depth of what that looked like. See, in each of those instances, there's a power, or a person in power that is using their position to degrade, to oppress, or to use the other person for their gain. So Jesus lays out these three instances showing the fact that people are using their position of power to degrade other individuals. And he he teaches it so interestingly. What he does is he amplifies the injustice to show the fundamental wrongness of the legalized oppression. So when you get slapped on your cheek, turn your other cheek as well, amplifying the injustice to just show how fundamentally wrong it is. We could go through and we could study just these three little ideas or word pictures that Jesus presents Uh, We're not actually going to do that this morning. If you want to study this stuff, a guy named Walter Wink writes this book called The Powers That Be that gets really detailed into this, and it's incredibly fascinating how people in Jesus' time would have heard and understood this and how impactful these word pictures would have been. What we need to take from this is Jesus is saying, listen, you have one of three options. You can either fight back, you can flee the situation, Or you can find a third way. You can find a creative, loving, nonviolent way to stand against evil. Now, I know that this all sounds great in theory. It's easy to think about it here this morning and say, oh, yeah, great. No, I can do that. That's easy. But is it even efficient? It's not. It's way easier to fight back, it's way easier just to leave the situation. But that is not the call of the gospel. The call is to find the third way. I recently spoke with Russ, and I I was uh, studying for this and preparing, and I I asked Russ, do you you have a story that could maybe highlight or kind of lend an idea of what an actual practical third way looks like uh, in, in our world right now? And immediately he came up with a story. There's a young gal who lives just a couple of blocks away from Russ. She's a part of another church in Spokane. She had her nice coat in her car. One night, it got stolen. She woke up the next morning, saw that it was stolen, incredibly frustrated, all those things, and she had a couple of options. She could fight back. She could get real vindictive, call the police, search for this person, put up cameras, put up floodlights, wish ill will upon the person that stole the coat, thinking things like, oh, man, if if he's wearing the coat downtown, I hope he gets beat up for the coat begin to think those kind of, those hatred thoughts. She could flee the situation. She could say, that's it. I'm moving to Maine. Nothing bad happens in Maine. (laughs) Or, I'm going to get an alarm system for my car. Or, I'm getting a club. 
or I just got to move to a different neighborhood. It's too dangerous here. She could flee the situation, or she could find a third way. And that's what she did. So a couple of nights later, she leaves this note in her car and leaves her car unlocked. And the note says, to the person who stole my coat, I have matching gloves if you need them. And a couple days later, you wouldn't have guessed, but that person shows up at the door wearing the coat and says, if you have the gloves, I would really love the gloves. And she gave her gloves. And ever since then, She's been leaving a box in the back seat of her car, leaving her car unlocked. And in that box, she puts you know, a banana and an apple. She maybe puts shampoo. She puts an extra pair of warm socks, a scarf. Whatever it may be that would, we would see as just a necessity if you were going to live out on the streets in the cold. And on that box, she just puts free. And sometimes stuff's taken out of it, and sometimes it isn't. But what she did was she found a third way. She said, I'm not going to fight back. I'm not going to flee. I'm going to be true to the gospel, and I'm going to find a third way. That is a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story. Walter Wink says this, Jesus' third way is not an insufferable counsel to perfection, attainable only by a few. It is simply the right way to live and can be pursued by many. The more who attempt it, the more mutual support there will be in following it. God is calling us to stand against the cycle of evil, to find creative, loving, non-violent ways that we're neither passive acceptors of the violence that's placed upon us or violent reactors towards that violence, but that we are people true to the gospel, ready and willing to find third ways, loving, creative, non-violent ways to deal with the evil people and situations in our life. That is the call of Jesus Christ. Into that second section, Matthew 5, 43 through 48, the pattern that is laid out is this, the traditional righteousness, Jesus says, you have heard it said that you love your neighbor and you hate your enemy. Now, hating your enemy was kind of this unspoken idea, and I think it's even unspoken in our culture at some level, too. We, we love our neighbors, we love our families, but it's okay to kind of hate the evil one. It's okay to hate your enemy. Jesus reinterprets this, and he says, yeah, but treat your enemies in the same way that you would treat your neighbors. And then he gives us this call to distinct discipleship by saying, our call is to preemptively love our neighbor or I'm sorry, preemptively love our enemy. That is our call. Preemptively love your enemies. Bonhoeffer says this, to the natural man, the very notion of loving his enemies is an intolerable offense and quite beyond his capacity. It cuts clean across, the, uh, across his ideas of good and evil. More importantly still, to man under the law, the, loving, the idea of loving his enemies is clean contrary to the law of God, which requires men to serve all convection with their enemies and to pass judgment on them. Jesus, however, takes the law of God into his own hands and expounds upon its true meaning. The will of God to which the law gives expression is that man should defeat their enemies by loving them. Loving your enemies might be one of the hardest calls of discipleship in the gospel. This is incredibly challenging stuff. And we often feel justified in the way that we hate people. We talk about things like, oh, I hate the sin, but I love the sinner. 
don't know if that holds that much merit often when we say it. Those two things are, are so connected to us that I think oftentimes we say that, but what we really say is, I hate the sin and I hate the sinner too. Those things are intrinsically linked. And because of it, I, I think it's much easier for us to hate our enemies than we often give credit for it. So that second point in this section is this. We are called to preemptively love our neighbors. It is not a simple invitation to hate less. It's not a simple invitation just to hate a little less publicly. It's a call to love extravagantly, to love in spite of action, to preemptively love our enemies, our adversaries, the outsider. And here's the truth. If we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, then love has to permeate everything in our world. Preemptive love is not just simple indifference. It doesn't just mean forgetting the wrongs that have been placed upon us, but it means actually finding ways to love the outsider. Walter Wink continues in, in that same book I mentioned earlier to say this, cannot be stressed too much. Love of enemies has for our time become the litmus test of authentic Christian faith. Love of enemies is the recognition that the enemy, too, is a child of God. The scripture says in verse 45, which we read, that God causes the sun to rise upon the evil and the good and sends the rain to nourish both the righteous and unrighteous. When we read that, do we really understand how radically inclusive God is? That is a radical statement. There is no hierarchy in God's love. He doesn't love some people here and some people here. He loves all people, both those who love him back and those who deny him. There is only one love to God. It is unconditional, unmerited, inconceivable love for all people. He does not choose who he loves. And in the same way as disciples, we do not get to choose who we love. We are called to love all people. Another quote by Stanley Howarth says this, agape being this form of love begins by loving others for their own sake, which requires that we have love for the enemy, neighbor from whom you can expect no good in return, but only hostility and persecution. I once heard it said that hate unmakes the world, but love unmakes hate. And that love will redeem the world. That is the life that we are called into. You may be sitting here thinking, well, again, this is great, but how do I actually do this? It starts in a couple of ways. First, confession. We need to confess that we have this stuff inside of us. Confess the fact that we often do hate our enemies. Confess that we have been feeble at trying to love our adversaries. Second, we need to pray for our enemies. Pray for those who we would view as adversarial. And last, we have to put into action the idea of loving our enemies. I found 
this story online. It was in a, a newspaper just uh, back in January. This is how the story reads. Egypt's majority Muslim population stuck to its word Thursday night. What had been a promise of solidarity to the way of Coptic community, Coptic community being a Christian community in Egypt, was honored when thousands of Muslims showed up at Coptic Christmas Eve mass services in churches around the country and at candlelight vigils held outside. From the well-known to the unknown, Muslims had offered their bodies as human shields for last night's mass, making a pledge to collectively fight the threat of Islamic militants and towards an Egypt free from sectarian life. We either live together or we die together, was their slogan. This is not about us and them, said one student. We are one. This was an attack on Egypt as a whole, and I am standing with the cops because the only way things will change in this country is if we come together. That is putting action behind love. When you have Muslims supporting, caring for, protecting Christians, which we would often see as these two enemies battling, that is action behind love. Let me lead you with this question here and think about this. What is more sinful in the eyes of God? Is it hating your enemy or neglecting to love your enemy? Is one of these things more wrong? Or does God view the fact that we often don't even try to love our enemies as the same thing as hating them? How are we confessing? How are we praying? How are we actively loving our enemies? We have to recognize that these ten verses are incredibly challenging. Some of the hardest in all of the scripture to understand and put into practice. And that it's only by the grace and direction of God who we are able to live into these third ways and actually live a life that preemptively loves our enemies. You guys may not know this, but often as uh, one of us prepares for this talk, we title these talks. Sometimes they're on the back of your bulletin. I titled this talk, Really? That's how you would read it if, if you read it. If you've ever seen SNL, they do that skit on, um, on the Weekend Update. But, but here's why I title it this. Because when I read this, my first thought that I have is, Really, Jesus? That's what you're going to have me do? Really? I'm going to love my enemies? Really, I'm not going to fight back? Really, I can't just leave the situation? And I think Jesus is saying, yeah, really. I'm calling you into third ways. Yeah, I'm telling you, you need to love your enemies. But hating is so much easier because in hate, we get to hold on to the control still. We still get to hold on to it. We feel like we're now in the power position because we can hate somebody else. But when we love, we become a servant, as Jesus did. And that is what we are called to. Now, I know that there is tension in this. It's easy just to sit up here and give this kind of grand ethical teaching from the cheap seats of Spokane, Washington, where I don't really have enemies. This looks much different when you're deployed overseas. And I don't ever want what we share here and this morning to be an oversimplification of complex issues. I don't want it always just to be balloons and lollipops from up here, because that's not 
what we're trying to say. What we're trying to say is the gospel is hard. But Jesus calls us into a life that is bigger and greater than we can understand. The question always comes up, well, again, Kevin, this is, this is great. I mean, cool that you want to talk about this, but what happens if you see your kids being attacked or your wife murdered? Here's my answer. I have no idea. Here's what I do know. If left to my own devices, my natural tendency in that situation or in either one of those situations is to seek, kill, and destroy. Who does that sound like, though? And is that the way of the gospel? Or is that why we have community around us to help inform the ways that we act, to help push us towards discipleship, not allowing us to rest on ourselves? The life of the gospel is marked by love, by grace, by mercy and compassion and gentleness, self-control and courage. That is the life of a disciple. We cannot be pickers and choosers of the things that are easy in the gospel. We can't read something and say, oh, well, I'm really great at mission, but ah, I just can't stop judging people. Or, oh, I'm so good at praying, but this enemy's thing, I'm going to continue to hold on to that hate and bitterness. We cannot pick and choose. Jesus speaks clearly about our call to find third ways. He speaks clearly about preemptively loving our enemies. And we cannot let the complexity of these issues dictate the way that we live our lives. We have to wrestle with this stuff and with community press in to this stuff. The life of a disciple demands a consistent ethic across the board. It demands that we find third ways that we love our enemies. We are called to nothing less than this. We are called to the unmaking of hate and to the redemption of our world. And so we move forward in that way. Let's pray.